you'd like to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, we're going to be looking at John 11, starting at verse 45 through John 12, verse 11. So we're going to finish chapter 11 and, and just begin chapter 12, kind of straddling each, each one of those chapters. That's on page 898 of the Pew Bibles, if you're using one of those. Let's go to the Lord and pray together. Heavenly Father, you are our God. And you have given us not only the general revelation of creation, of everything around us, that reveals and points to you, but you've also given us this special revelation. You've given us your word. Father, we ask in faith and independence upon you for your help. We ask for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit as we open up your word this morning, we ask that you would show us the truth contained in Scripture, allow us to understand it, and allow us to apply it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Whatever is at the center of something is usually important. If you've ever gone online to purchase tickets for some kind of big game or an event or some sort of stadium uh, event that's happening and you see one of those aerial photos of, of the, the stadium and all the seats and the sections and, and where you can choose to, to purchase your seat. If you look at one of those, it becomes very clear very quickly that whatever's happening in the center, whatever's in the middle of that court or that field or the stage, that's the important part. Everything else is oriented around it. Everything else is facing that center. That, that's the most important part. There was a, a city that was building a new community aquatic center, and they had the uh, architectural designs and the floor plan laid out on, on easels for the, for the community to come and look at at City Hall. And, and, and on those, those plans, you could see the pool was at the center. They, they had everything built around it. They had the, the staff offices. They had the, some locker rooms and a mechanical room and a, and a big welcome lobby area and a, and a snack bar. Everything was around it. It was the pool that was at the center. That was the most important part of the aquatic center. That makes sense. Even when we get in our cars, we, we sit down and what's the first thing that's right in front of us, right in the center? The steering wheel. That's what's most important. We can do without the radio. We can do without the tachometer that shows how many RPMs our engine is running at. We can do without the Bluetooth and even without the AC if we had to. But you really can't operate that vehicle without the steering wheel. You're not going to get very far at all. It's most important. That's how it is with a lot of things. Whatever is at the center is the most important. And that's how it is with our hearts. Whatever is at the center of our heart, whatever at the center of our heart affections, that reveals what is most important to us. In John chapter 11 and 12, we are going to see some very different responses, different attitudes, different reactions to Jesus. 
polar opposites, extreme opposites. They're, they're going to be way over on, on each end of the, of the spectrum here. And we have to ask the question, why is that? Why are there so, so different reactions to Jesus? Because it's not Jesus. It's not as if Jesus acts one way and says some things to a certain group of people over here and then he takes the mask off and he's completely different and acts a different way and says different things to another group of people over here. No, that's, that's not it. What is it? It's what's at the center of people's hearts. That is what determines the reaction and the response to Jesus Christ. Let's read our passage, and I want, first of all, just on this first reading as we, as we go through it, to see if you can identify those different responses. They're on either extreme of the spectrum. Let's listen for those. We're going to start at 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the, Jew, of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus, and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know, so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at, with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of, Judas, one of his disciples, he, was about to, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. 
So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. As we begin at 11.45, right out of the gate, and I'm sure you caught this, we see two different responses. Immediately, two very different responses from some of the people that had witnessed Jesus raise Lazarus. At the very beginning, it says, some of them believed in him. Now, we've been in John long enough that when we see that phrase, believed in him, we know that it can mean genuine belief. It can mean they really were believing him. But we also know that it can mean that it was temporary belief or surface belief, that, that it wasn't saving belief. But at this point, it seems like at least some of the Jews who is, who is reported in the text here that says they believed in him may very well have placed genuine faith in Jesus Christ after this unmistakable high-profile sign. Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days and Jesus called him out and he walked out of the tomb. That that was a high-profile sign. And we have to imagine that at least for some of the people in the crowd, this was enough to tip the balance from unbelief or, or, or feelings of not being sure to belief. This was enough. Some of them surely had, had thought, okay, well, well, that's it. I can't deny that. That's enough. That's the money shot. I'm in. I, I believe this man is whoever he claims to be because that is a miracle from God. There was just no way to deny it. It was right in front of their face. And yet, in the very next verse, it says, some of them also who were at the raising of Lazarus went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Are you seeing this? They were literally standing right there as they watched Jesus call the dead man out of the tomb and they decided, okay, I'm I'm going to continue in willful disbelief. I am not going to put my faith and trust in this man. Instead, I'm going to go report him to the Pharisees. Jesus was giving them more light. They didn't want the light. They wanted the light to go away. And they knew if they reported him, the Pharisees had the power to make that light go away. Same miracle, same Jesus. Two radically different responses. Polar opposites. And it has everything to do with what was at the center of their hearts. This is how we know that witnessing a miracle does not automatically lead someone to faith in Christ. This is how we know that that watching something supernatural occur right in front of our eyes does not necessarily convince someone of the truth of the gospel. I remember talking with a man several years ago who was a co-worker when I lived in Maine, and I was trying to explain the gospel to him. I was trying to witness to him, and, and he was resistive, and he said, you know what, that's, that's great. I'm, I'm glad that works for you. I have nothing against that. I'm just, I'm having a hard time. And then he said, you know what, if he would just show up just for a second, 
just for a couple of seconds, if he would just show up and say, I am real, he said, then I would believe in him. And in my mind I was thinking, maybe. But I was also thinking that that's not how it works. That's not how God operates. Because here's Jesus showing up, three years of incarnate ministry, three years of signs, including this this magnificent, high-profile, undeniable sign, miracle from God, and they still didn't believe. God ordinarily arrests our attention not by personal appearances or theophanies or miraculous signs, but by the power of his Holy Spirit through the word of God, the reading and preaching and proclamation of the gospel. That's the ordinary means by which God uses to call people out of darkness into the kingdom of light. This is where our old friend, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is helpful. Q&A number 31, what is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit. Who convinces us that we are sinful and miserable? Who enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ? And who renews our wills? This is how he persuades and makes us able to receive Jesus Christ, who is freely offered to us in the gospel. That's how God calls someone. This is why a sound, robust pulpit ministry is critical for the health and life and the ministry and the mission of the local church. It's because these are the means that God uses. Let's look at the response from the Sanhedrin, verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. The council is the Sanhedrin. This, this is the 70-member Jewish council that was made up of uh, people from both uh, religious political parties, the, Sanhedrin, or the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees. It was made up of chief priests, it was made up of scribes. And they were the final authority on all things Jewish for the Jewish people. Now, they were centered in Jerusalem, and although they were under the ultimate authority of the Romans, Rome, for the most part, let them do their thing. For the most part, Rome let them function autonomously and and carry on without much interference. The Sanhedrin, it's hard to underestimate the power and influence the Sanhedrin had. It's been compared to the legislative and the judicial and the executive branch all rolled into one. They, they made the laws, they enforced the laws, and when the laws were broken, they, they tried people and carried out judicial action. So they were extremely powerful. They ruled over everything. So that's the council that's gathering. They were convened. And they are in what we might call crisis mode. What are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. What are we going to do? This is getting out of hand. We can't let this keep going on like it is. We have to do something. We need a plan to take care of this situation. They're desperate. They're in crisis mode. Uh, Verse 48 reveals their fear. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And we can hear that logical progression 
that they were thinking. They were saying, okay, this is what an unchecked Jesus will lead to. If we let him go on, he's going to gain more followers. If he gains more followers, uh, they're going to want to make him king. If they make him king, then Rome is going to hear about it. And they're going to respond because although, excuse me, although Rome allowed them to function autonomously, Rome did not put up with rebellion. So if Rome heard that there was a messianic king gathering people around himself, they would show up in force and they would put that down. And when they put that, when, they, when Rome showed up to put rebellions down, it got bloody. They burned entire cities to put rebellions down. But the chain doesn't stop there. That's not really what they're concerned about. And look where it stops. It says, and that will mean that our place and our nation will be taken from us. That's where their heart is. Power and position. Self. They weren't really concerned about the Jewish people. They weren't really concerned about the thousands of Jewish people that would be killed in, in a Roman, uh, res- Roman response with general and armies. No, that really wasn't a big deal to them. What they were concerned about was losing their power and position. These were not godly leaders. These were corrupt politicians that were serving themselves. They had a very nice setup. If you were on the Sanhedrin, you were in charge. You were the elite leadership. They didn't want that to go away. They didn't want to lose the status quo that they had going on with all the perks that came with it. I think it's obvious what the center of their heart is. Well, this is interrupted by an influential speech, verses 49 through 53. Now, we, these need careful attention. It, it gets a little sticky here. We need to understand, uh, understand what's going on in, in 49 through 53. So Caiaphas was the high priest at the time. So he was ruling over the Sanhedrin. He was the top dog. Over all the Sanhedrin, he was, he was at the top. He gives a speech. He intends one thing with his speech, but John tells us, as he narrates this account, that he was also unknowingly prophesying under the influence of the Holy Spirit another meaning that God had intended and decreed from eternity past. So let's, let's unpack this first. What did Caiaphas mean? Here's, here's Caiaphas. He starts off by saying, you know nothing at all. That could be loosely paraphrased as, um, you don't know what you're talking about. This is how he breaks into the conversation. This Caiaphas comes across as kind of this, this blustery, uh, arrogant type of guy who's kind of throwing his weight around. He is the chief over the Sanhedrin, by the way, but it seems like he's breaking in just to kind of show everybody that he's a, a no-nonsense, tough leader who's willing to make the tough call when nobody else is. That's kind of how he's coming across. He wants to portray himself as a strong leader in the midst of, of weakness, because in his eyes, they're acting fairly weakly. I mean, look at this. They are kind of wringing their hands saying, I don't know what we're going to do. He's, 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 he's gathering more followers. Every time we try to confront, confront Jesus, he always makes us look like fools. I, I don't know what we're going to do. And so Caiaphas steps in and says, you're going to kill him. That's what you're going to do. You, you don't know what you're talking about. Stop messing around. You all think that you can kind of navigate this by trying to manage this guy? The only thing that's going to work is to take him off the board. You just need to kill him. 
That's what Caiaphas is saying. It's the most efficient, easiest solution. And he appeals to their self-interest. Listen, it is better for you that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. If you want to retain your power and position, they're listening now, then you're going to have to kill him because that's the only way it's going to work. But we can frame this in terms of what's best for the nation. That's what he's saying. We don't want to rip the nation apart. We don't, we don't want Rome coming in here. If anybody asks us, if word gets out, if, if anybody hears about this, we can just say, look, you don't want Rome to show up and put down a rebellion. Do you want that? Do you want that for your family? Do you want Rome to come in here with the armies? Nobody wants that. That's how we're going to spin this. Okay, that's what Caiaphas intended with his speech. But John tells us, that Jesus did actually die as a sacrifice on behalf of the nation, and not only for the nation, but for Jew and Gentile, all who are far off, no matter where they are, to be brought into one body, the church. So John is saying, even though Caiaphas is saying these things and meaning those things, he's also unknowingly prophesying the death of Christ on behalf of his people. Caiaphas was not thinking about the redemptive plan of God and joining Jew and Gentile into one body of the church. That was not on his agenda. Caiaphas was making a, a forceful speech to, to sway the Sanhedrin to a politically expedient uh, solution, meaning killing an innocent man. That's what Caiaphas was trying to go for. So that's what he meant. John says, no, God was using Caiaphas to prophesy, and he didn't even know about it. So that's what's going on there. In verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This was not the first time the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus. They had tried to kill him by stoning twice. Chapter 8, chapter 10. This was the first time where they resolved and they were going to make a plan. It says um, uh, that they made plans. It could also be translated as resolved or decided. So before they had wanted to, now they were going to. That's the difference. They were going to plan, orchestrate, and carry out the execution of an innocent man. As a result of the Sanhedrin's decision, things were, were starting to get a little tense. We call this section tension mounts on the, on the Temple Mount. There was sort of this electricity, uh, this tension that was happening around, around Passover. Jesus, for his part, stayed away. He, he went away to this town well outside of Jerusalem. We're not exactly sure about the location of this. Most likely, based on the synoptic uh, details, on the east side of the Jordan. So far enough away from, from, from any kind of threat. But then the last couple of verses in chapter 11 give us that snapshot of the tense mood that was prevailing over Jerusalem at this time. As Passover approached, there was an influx of people that came into Jerusalem. Remember, you had the general population of Jerusalem, but whenever there was a festival, especially Passover, you had this huge swell of, of population. The, the Jewish people from all over the land came in so that they could participate in this holy day, in this holy festival. 
And they had to purify themselves for ceremonial uncleanness. So they were in, in, in lines. They were standing in lines for sacrifices, for washings. Remember, first century. So you've got tens of thousands of people standing around in line because there's only one temple. You can't get this done anywhere else. You had to go to the temple. Thousands and thousands of people standing in line in the first century. What are they doing? They don't have phones. They're not looking down at their phone. They don't have newspapers. Many of them couldn't even read. They, they didn't have uh, radios. What were they doing? They were talking. They were standing in line with all kinds of time to kill, and they were talking. And what were they talking about? Jesus. This, look, look at this mood. They were stood, as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Will he come or not? They're asking questions. Have you seen him? Uh, no, I, I haven't seen him. My cousin saw him. Okay, well, what do, you, what do you think? Is he going to show up? I don't know. If you saw him, would you report him to the, the Pharisees? Because they've got an order out. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I want to get in the middle of that. These are the types of discussions that, is, that are on the lips of everyone gathered in Jerusalem. Jesus is at the center of conversation and um, a, a, a topic of interest. So the picture here is, is kind of like the Pharisees, the Jewish leadership has, has put Jesus' picture up in the post office. And he's number one on the FBI's most wanted list. And, and everybody in Jerusalem is just kind of expecting some kind of showdown in the middle of the street. And everybody wants to see it, but nobody wants to get caught in the crossfire. It's tense. In the midst of this, Jesus arrives in Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem. And some might ask, oh, 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 oh wait a minute. What do you mean he arrived at Bethany? Where's, where's the trip through Jericho? Where's the healing of the blind man? Uh, where's Zacchaeus stopping in his house? Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give us accounts of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Uh, what, why doesn't John tell us that? Well, the fact that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are not all identical and all give us the same information is actually helpful. What if that were true? What if, what if all the three synoptics and John told the exact same story? Well, where would their value and benefit be as independent witnesses? Um, it wouldn't. And, and that would look more than suspicious if we had exactly the same thing written from each gospel writer and yet they were claiming to, writing, claim, claiming to write independently and not have gotten together, I, that would be very difficult to believe. So the fact that John does not include something and they do include something, and the fact that they're all telling the story, the same story, but it, from a different perspective in a slightly different way, that actually strengthens the independent witness. It strengthens the validity of, of what we're being told. So that's a good thing. Jesus and his disciples then are in Bethany. They're at the house of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. They're hosting a dinner. And here what we have highlighted is the anointing of Jesus by Mary. And then subsequently, Judas's comment and Jesus' response. So this is what's on, on display in these first few verses of 12. Verse 3 describes that lavish act of thankfulness and devotion, and love, and worship on the part of Mary. 
It says she, she takes a large quantity of very expensive perfumed, oil-based perfume, and she pours it on his feet and wipes the excess off with her hair. She's on the ground in front of Jesus at his feet, worshiping him. This is uh, scented oil made from a, the root of a nard plant, which is found in India. And like today, it's, it's the same thing. The cost increases, the more pure it is. So if you've got something that's been watered down or, or mixture's been, you know, something else has been added, it's been diluted, well, then it's not more expensive. This says it was made from pure nard. This was uncut, undiluted, extremely expensive. We'll find out just how expensive in a moment. People usually anointed their head with oil. Mary anointed his feet. This communicates humility. This says, you are Lord, you are up here, I'm, I'm down here, I'm your servant. Positioning herself at the feet of Jesus was an unmistakable way of communicating to everyone, you, you are more important than I am. I'm down here, you're up there. There's no way you can mistake that message from this act. It's an act of worship. It says the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It was about 11 and a half ounces, so we can imagine about almost a, an entire soda can of undiluted oil-based perfume being completely poured out in this room. It would have filled the room. It would have been overpowering. And it would have stayed there a while. Okay, this wasn't going to go away after a few minutes. It was a costly, personal act of love, devotion, gratitude, and worship. And the text shows us what's on Mary's heart. What is at the center of Mary's heart right now? Jesus. And then Judas has to ruin that. All this is going on, and then Judas makes his comment. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? A denarii was a day's, a day's wages for common labor, so if someone was working full-time, we're excluding the Sabbaths, a Jewish person wouldn't work on the Sabbath, so if they were working full-time, this was a year's worth of wages. 300 denarii. That was a lot of money. That was a lot of money in the first century. It still is. It still is. Who, who here would give a year's salary for 11 and, a house, 11 and a half ounces of perfume. Anybody? I would not. I don't care how good it smelled. That is a lot of money for just a small amount of perfume. Some may be asking, well, well then how could she afford it? This, this could have been um, an heirloom generational gift. It was not uncommon in the first century for, for families to keep something like this, something that expensive, and pass it on to their, to their daughter or their granddaughter. And it was just something that was kept in the family. It was just so priceless. This very well could have been Mary's most valuable possession, easily. It was worth that much. But Judas makes his comment. He's not really concerned about the poor. 
He said this because if it would have been sold, it would have been gone, it would have gone into the common purse, which he held. And it tells us he was a thief. He wasn't concerned about helping the poor. He was concerned about helping himself to whatever was in the common purse. I don't think we have to wonder what was on Judas's heart or what was at the center of his heart himself. Money. That was his idol. And Jesus is right there with the response. He makes his comment, Jesus, leave her alone. In other words, back off, Judas. Don't bother her. So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. That's awkward wording, but the sense seems to be something like, even though Mary was unaware that Jesus' death was impending, the timing in God's providence coincided with his trip to the cross and burial. So it was Jesus' way of saying, no, 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 she did the right thing. Let her, she needs to have this. Let her keep it so that she can do this because this is the right thing to do at this time. And then he adds, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So Mary's done the right thing. If you really want to help the poor, Judas, of course he didn't. But if you really want to help the poor, there'll be time for that. But I'm here right now, and worshiping me is more important than helping the poor. Word got around. In verse 9, the people of Jerusalem hear that Jesus is close, that he arrived, that he's in Bethany. A large crowd goes out to see Jesus and Lazarus. Lazarus is the walking reminder of what Jesus had just done. Lazarus is the living proof that Jesus raised someone from the dead. And so the Sanhedrin decide they want to kill him too. Notice how easy it is to go from deciding to kill one innocent man to deciding to kill two innocent men. Really not that hard at all. They're in our way. They're a threat to our position and power. Let's just kill them both. We're told why. It says, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So everything is aimed at believing Jesus. That's the point of this gospel. Remember, John's writing this so that you may believe and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So John wants people to believe in Jesus. God wants people to believe in Jesus. Jesus wants others to believe in Jesus. That's why he's doing the signs. They authenticate who he is. Everybody wants people to believe in Jesus, but the Sanhedrin wants people to not believe in Jesus. That's antichrist. That's from the enemy. That's satanic. At the center. The title of this message is At the Center. I hope you could see those radically different responses. Same Jesus, but very extreme reactions and responses to each one of us. Caiaphas, uh, at the center of his own heart, at, with selfishness, position, power. Mary, at the center of her heart, Jesus. Very obvious. Judas, at the center of his heart, money, self, his idols. And here's the difference. Those that had Jesus at the center of their heart believed in him, worshipped him. Those that did not have Jesus at the center rejected him, did not believe in him, were opposed to him. And it's the same thing today. There, there are only two responses to Christ. 
in, there is no neutrality. And someone says, no, I'm just kind of neither here nor there. No, that's, there is no neither here nor there. There's no fence post. You're either for him or against him. If you claim to be neutral, you're actually against him. It's not Jesus. Jesus is the same. Hebrews 13 eight. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's not changing. He's not wearing a mask and pretending to be two different people. It depends on what's at the center of someone's heart. So the question is, who or what is at the center of your heart? We say, well, how do I know for sure? Well, there's a couple ways to know what's at the center of our, our hearts. One way, sometimes we know, is because it's what we talk about all the time. It's always on our mind. It's always coming out of our mouth. For Judas, it was money. The very first thing that Judas said when he saw Mary's act of worship was, mm, money. It could have been sold. I could have had that 300 right there. And here's how we know it was such a, a, a heart-strangling idol. Most people, you would think that when something like that happens and, and they have that desire, they would just think it. They would just watch the act going on thinking, oh, should I have that 300? It actually comes out. He says it. He's not just thinking it would be nice. He's saying, ah, oh, boy, I wish I had that 300. He's not even trying to hide it. You've heard the expression, what is down in the well comes up in the bucket. That, that's what's going on in our hearts. That's what happens to our hearts. If we're talking about something all the time, if it's on our hearts, if it's on our minds, if, if we're working towards it, if we're, if we're, we're talking about it all the time, that might very well be a heart idol. And if we don't know what we talk about all the time, ask your spouse. They'll be able to tell you. They'll be able to say, oh yeah, you talk about this all the time. Oh yeah, that's all you think about. Oh yeah, that's all you're, you're making plans for, you're setting aside time for, you're spending money on that. that. We know that's what you're working toward. This is what's occupying the majority of what's up here and in here. Whatever that thing is, or whatever that person is, it may be at the center of our heart. Other times we know because we react negatively or act rashly, when it is threatened or we're in danger of losing it. The center of the Sanhedrin's hearts were their position and their power. That's what was being threatened. Their, their position and power was, was, was possibly going to be removed. And so they were willing to kill in order to protect it. That's acting rashly. What if threatened causes you to go into crisis mode. It could be power and position. It could be uh, your business. It could be your way of life. The status quo. It could be relationships. It could be health. It could be control. It could be security. It could be wanting to feel significant, like we're making a difference. It could be the desire to receive praise and recognition from others. It could be a lot of things. Do we panic when something is threatened? Do we, do we go into crisis mode when something is, is maybe going to be removed from our life? 
If so, that may be what's at the center of our heart. And then finally, sometimes we know what's at the center of our heart because we are unwilling to give it up. Are you willing to give up your most valuable possession? Would you give that up in a moment for Christ? Mary was, and let's be honest here, she was never getting that back. If this was some kind of family heirloom, this was a one and done. You get one shot with this. You can use it once, and that's it. She's never going to spend a year's worth of wages on 11 ounces of perfume again. This was it. It was just too costly. And yet she freely, without hesitation, without regret, just poured it out for one moment, for one minute or so of worship to Jesus. We know what was on her heart. We know it was at the center. It was Christ. There is... Was money at the center of Mary's heart? Absolutely not. She wouldn't have poured that out. Self-importance, any, any of those other things. No, 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 no. It was Christ. Christ was at the center. She was willing to give up her most valuable possession. Well, I have good news for all of us because Jesus knows how to deal with hearts that cling to idols. In fact, it's his specialty. Jesus Christ gives us a new heart, one that has him at the center. This is good news for believers and unbelievers. First of all, for believers, if you're here this morning, if you put put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, hear these words from the Lord. Ezekiel 36, 25 and 26. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, capital S, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be be careful to obey my rules. Now, originally, this was God speaking to his people 590s, 580s BC, they were going into exile for covenant disobedience. He's saying, I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to restore you for my own glory. For my, the, my, the, in order to vindicate the holiness of my name, I am going to first bring you out and then I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to wash you. I'm going to cleanse you from your idols and give you a new heart. You see, God is passionate about his holy name. So much so that he's willing to do the work, the heart work in his people that are called by his name to ensure that they reflect his glory. He is committed. Out of sheer grace, he renews his people from the inside out. And it starts with a new heart. It starts with a heart that has Christ at the center. If you are a follower of Christ here this morning, know that God does the spiritual heavy lifting for you. He is the one who has given you a new heart with Christ at the center. He's given you new spiritual birth. And since God has done the work, the work cannot be undone. We've got to remember that. Since God has done the work, the work cannot be undone. 
This is, a, this is like a, a boulder of assurance sitting in the, in the front lawn of our life. It cannot be moved. It's right there every time we open our eyes. God does the work. Let's look just for a minute at Romans 8.30. We've looked at this before. This is the golden chain. We've commented on this verse before for different reasons, but I want to look at it again. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see the rhythm that Paul's getting into there? This is why it's called the golden chain. He just names one thing and it leads to the next, it leads to the next, it leads to the next. Notice how they all end in ED, past tense. He predestined, he called, he justified, he also glorified ED, past tense. Now if you remember your order of salvation, we haven't been glorified yet. That's something that comes in the future. We've been called, we've been predestined, we've, we've been justified, but we haven't been glorified yet. That, that comes at the end. That comes when we are raised with imperishable bodies to join God, to give Him glory forever, enjoy Him, and worship Him in a resurrected eternal state. That has not happened yet, but Paul says he also glorified Did he make a mistake? No. The reason he can talk about our glorification in past tense is because it is such a done deal. It is so settled that he can talk of it as if it's past tense. Since God has done the work, the work cannot be undone. This is a huge rock of assurance for us. And we need to remember this the next time we experience doubt. The next time we're in the throes of temptation. The next time we fall to temptation. We need to remember that because God has done the work, the work cannot be undone. This doesn't mean we we just kind of kick back and don't work towards our sanctification at all. This doesn't mean that we give up. This doesn't mean we let go and let God. This doesn't mean that we stop repenting and we stop confessing sin. No. It means the next time our heart idols are clawing at our heart, trying to get in to reclaim that center position, we turn in faith and know that Jesus is at the center of our heart. There's no way that they can come in and reoccupy and retake that territory. The next time you're struggling with sin, or the next time you've fallen to sin, come back to this. Come back to the fact that Christ has given you a new heart with Christ at the center. That's the indicative. That's the truth. That's the reality. We don't go by how we're feeling in the moment. We go by what's true. And what's true is that Christ has done the work. Now, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, you need to know this. The only way to make Jesus Christ the center of your heart is for God to give you a new heart with Jesus Christ at the center. You cannot make yourself clean. You cannot wash yourself. You cannot rid yourself of those heart idols. If you have idols at the center of your heart now, and you do not turn to Christ, then you're going to have idols at the center of your heart tomorrow, and a year from now, and five years from now, 
and 10 years from now. And if you do not turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and belief, if you do not cling to the cross by faith alone and trust in him for your salvation, then you will die clinging to those heart idols. They will, you will die with those at the center of your heart. Try as you may, you cannot make yourself clean. And that is why God provided a Savior. If we, if we could make ourselves clean, we wouldn't have the need for Christ. We can't. It is impossible. So I promise you, on the authority of Scripture, if you turn to Jesus Christ today, He will forgive your sin, He will wash you, and He will give you a new heart with Christ at the center. Amen. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that our salvation does not depend upon us. We are so grateful that it does not depend on us being good enough or enduring long enough or washing ourselves and, and making ourselves clean or any, anything else that we could do under our own power. Father, we thank you that salvation is your work from beginning to end. We give you praise and thanks for the new heart that you've given us with Christ at the center. Help us to fan the flame that is already burning because you have saved us. Amen.